Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, take, uh, take that outline, and uh, you'll want to do that. Uh, I do just want to welcome Lois, Lois back to our, our worship. It's so good to see you. We know that you suffered with illness, and Ron kept us posted, and so welcome back. We're so glad you're here. All right, take uh, your outline. Jesus returns home. Jesus returns home. You know, I've heard some... Uh, Great sermons in my life. It's been my privilege to uh, to have uh, many, many outstanding uh, in our days. Some of the most outstanding Bible teachers and professors, uh, and I, I've received a great trust, and I, I know that. And and a trust means I'm a steward, and therefore I'm I'm responsible and accountable to to discharge uh, the things that I've been given, and I try to do that. Every day and every week of my life, yeah, I mean, I can. I've heard some of my uh, masters, my teachers, professors preach, and it was so amazing that I felt like I didn't want to preach anymore. You ever, if you, if you've ever been a teacher and if you've ever preached and you've heard a master by God's Spirit open the Word and preach, uh, you feel like I'm in second grade, you know, and you go like, why even try, right? I, I've <laughs> I mean, from Dr. Jim Boyce, you know, and, and his tremendous preaching in my life, John MacArthur, you know, tremendous, tremendous preacher, uh, Dr. Pickering, president of the college I attended. I never took a homiletics class in undergraduate, I, but I listened to him preach every week, and I learned what preaching was. He's not, so many of these uh, men that have influenced my life are now in heaven, and uh, wow. There's there's something wonderful about the dynamic of preaching. It's uh, it's the proclamation of the word of God that God has chosen uh, through men, through the Spirit, through the Word to save people and to edify His saints. Uh, to declare, you know, for many years as a boy, I I delivered the newspaper. I used to hate it actually. <laughs> Four thirty in the morning, I'd get up for seven years and deliver the Courier Express. And I'm sure not because I helped them, but they went bankrupt. And uh, but I, 365 days a year, 64 and a quarter, whatever it was, delivered the papers. Scared out of my mind, you know. What kind of father sends a son out at 13 to walk the streets when it's pitch black? In Buffalo, <laughs> freeze to death, you know. For about three years, I had a kink in my neck. I kept hearing sounds and looking over my shoulder. After three and a half years, I resolved I would be better if they killed me. Just let me kill me. I don't have to do this anymore. And I stopped looking over my shoulder. What in the world does that have to do with a sermon? I can't think of it. Anyway, I, f- I feel better getting that off my chest. <laughs> it has something to do with it. Oh, I'm just the deliverer. Thank you, dear. Uh, yes, she helps I'm just, in preaching, you know, uh, it, the pastor really is just a delivery guy. 
I guess my earliest homiletical training was delivering papers. I never wrote a word of the paper. I just delivered it. And if people have a problem with, uh, with the word, uh, the problem's not with, with me. Your problem is with the Lord. And uh, in a, a day that hates truth, you know, the sign of a really educated man or woman today is they know absolutely nothing for sure. Did you know that? That's a Ph.D. I've been completely educated so that nothing is certain. What a sad day we live in. It's not always been like that. It isn't. There is objective truth, and it's always true. Always true. God's word is yea and amen. It doesn't matter. Someone said, well, God said it. I believe it. You know the truth is? It really doesn't matter if you believe it. It's true. It's true. And uh, faithful teaching in small group and Sunday school and in youth and behind the pulpit is the declaring of what God has given to us. It is the book of all books, and I love books. There's no book like the Bible. It's the Holy Scriptures. That's why Satan hates it, you know. He'd love it if it just never be opened in your house. You just never listen to, to it, and you never, and for a lot of reasons, miss worship. Don't come here for a lot of reasons, you know. God would love that. Just keep you on the, or Satan would love that. Keep you off on the sideline. Keep you off the field, the field called life and service for Jesus, and, uh, and so on. Well, today we come in this gospel of certainty. Dr. Luke, Luke was a medical doctor. You know that already as we've been studying this. And I've entitled the message, Jesus Returns Home. You know, homecomings are very, usually very special events, aren't they? They're special events. Often the emotions run high as we anticipate returning to see old faces <laughs> and familiar sights. Now, some of you have lived around here all your life, and it's not so shocking. But some of us have moved away from home a long time ago. And uh, when we see old faces, or we return to a high school reunion, right? 25-year reunion. You're like, old faces, oh, my word. Wow, look what, ha- what happened to them. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes the most beautiful girls, no, I won't say that. No, and the, uh, the, the jocks that were the real, you know, like, and I played all those sports, but, but some of them, oh, you go back in 25 years, it's unbelievable. What has happened? And typically, it's not really good, <laughs> right? I'll leave that for your own imagination and experience. Homecomings. Sometimes returning from military service. Some of you have served in faraway places. And just to come home. I know, Galen, you were, uh, were you in Guam for the, that? Okinawa. Yeah, a long time away from home. And uh, just to return home, you ache for home, you write letters. And that day, they really wrote letters. And uh, just to, to, I'll be home for Christmas. You know, what a, what a great song. That was number one song for so many years. Still strikes many of us with nostalgia, just to be home, you know, just to be home. Or traveling and far away, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how far and long you, how far away you go and long your way. You long to be home. You just, to be home. There's something wonderful about the word home. Or if you lived in distant places, uh, just to be home. We, uh, I haven't lived in Buffalo since 1970, uh, 70, uh, what year was that? 78. That's a long time ago. And I go up there and, and just to return home, see the old familiar sights and see some of the faces. 
It's, uh, it's something. You know, it's uh, like the Wizard of Oz, right, Dorothy? No place like what? Home. No place like home. She clicks her heels. No place like home. Well, maybe, maybe. The life of the Lord Jesus, it wasn't quite like that, was it? We'll see in our text. There was a day when the Lord Jesus returned to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was Jesus' home. No, he wasn't born there. You know he was born in Bethlehem. That was the city of David. And he was there maybe until maybe two. Uh, and uh, went, uh, hurried off to Egypt when Herod, the maniac, tried to kill uh, the Lord Jesus. There was another king in the land. And uh, that maniac who killed his uh, wife and kids and all the rest uh, didn't want any competition and wanted to kill uh, this one baby born Jesus. And so... Went to Bethlehem and killed at that point uh, all those uh, males under two. Of course, the Lord had uh, delivered them. They went to Egypt. But when they came back from Egypt, they went to Nazareth. Nazareth was the little village. We say hometown. Really wasn't much of a town. Old Testament never even mentions Nazareth. So that one of the disciples said, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nothing up there. there. It's a hillbilly land. It's a north of Perry County. It's way, way up there. Nothing. That's how they viewed it. Really, they did. Jerusalem was the center. It was the university. It was the center of worship, the temple. There's only one temple. And the Galileans, they were sort of the hicks. Remember when they heard Peter speaking uh, there when he's warming his hands when Jesus was arrested? And there, Peter, a Galilean fisherman, and he speaks, and she said, I perceive that you're a Galilean. Well, what do you mean? He talked with a little bit of an accent there, and they could tell he wasn't uh, from Judea and from Jerusalem. Jesus was raised in a little cow town village called Nazareth. I've been there three or four times in my life and seen this place, and there's not much, much there. I've seen the precipice outside, the high point that we'll see in the text, that they attempted to kill the Lord Jesus. There was the wonderful applause that they, the hometown crew gave to him. Many of you know the account already, but uh, he went home uh, to visit. He had lived there until he was 30. Joseph had died at some time earlier. The Bible doesn't tell us when. Jesus then being the oldest son of Mary. And that day a Jews, uh, Jewish father trained his son in a trade, Train up a child in the way he should go. Proverbs 22, 6 often was understood in the Old Testament that it was the father's responsibility to train his son in a trade. Very different than today, where a lot of times we work outside our homes, although with technology and all, there are a lot of offices coming back into the home. I know that. But in that day, it was common. So Jesus was a carpenter. It meant he built houses. He built furniture, but he also worked with stone uh, in that day. The tecton, that's the word in the Greek used for that. And so uh, he was a hardworking man, was there until 30. He went to school in the synagogue. If a village in Israel had 10 families with 10 heads of homes, that means there was a Jewish father in the home. That was the minimum requirement for a synagogue. And there was a synagogue uh, there in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And it was very common that that became the school. So the place that we're going to see Jesus go was his hometown. And in fact, the synagogue was his school. 
he went there to a certain age, and they would study the law. Rabbis would teach them. Sorry, ladies. Uh, the, the girls were at home. Uh, they should be educated to whatever ability they can, and we're certainly for that here. But in that day, the guys were given a skill and a train and a vocation, but they also had to go to rabbinical school to learn the law. And so the Lord was sitting uh, in the synagogue. This synagogue simply means a gathering place for worship uh, in this, this place that he knew very, very, very well uh, during his 30 years uh, of uh, private living. And now when he's 30, he goes down and he's baptized by John, and he begins what would be a three-year public ministry ending at his greatest work there at, the, at Calvary where he offered his own life as the sacrifice for your sin and for mine. That was his greatest of all works. Now, he was there until 30. 30, you should know, many of you may know this, may not know this, but you could become in Israel at 25 a priest, but you were kind of like a junior priest. You did not have the full rights and privileges uh, at 25 years of age as a man as a Levite, to be a priest. You, ha- you finally, when you became 30, you were, uh, you were eligible to be a full-fledged priest. Isn't it interesting now that Jesus is 30 years of age and he enters his public ministry. He's the prophet, priest, and king, and he's going to enter into his great work. He's 30 years old. I remember when I was uh, in my late teens and into my 20s, I couldn't wait to be 30. We had this goofy expression in that day, and the longer I live, the goofier it is, can't trust anyone over 30. Do you remember How many of you remember that? Was that dumb or what? That's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. But we said it like it was the gospel, you know, I can't trust anybody over 30. You know? I couldn't wait till I was 30 just to see what, what it felt like in years when Jesus entered the ministry. And then I sort of wondered what it felt like when I was 33, of, uh, oh, that's how many years? And then Jesus offered us just, oh, I see. Wow, that went by in a flash here and gone. I can hardly remember it now. Wow. Wow. Anyway, Jesus is in, in the text we're going to look at. It's in his early days of public ministry, of preaching the gospel. His fame is becoming very well known as he, after his baptism, we saw last week, went into the wilderness to be tempted And then he began an itinerant preaching ministry, going to the synagogues of uh, the Galilee area, the little villages and towns up north of Jerusalem. Well, one can sense the excitement in Nazareth. It's heard that Jesus is going to return home. He's going to come. He's the, uh, the hometown boy made good. You know, we think of that, don't we? We love to claim those that make it from our little, little beginnings, right? Don't we do that? Um, uh, we do. Oh, he's from here. You know, like he, he hit 500 home runs. He's from my hometown. Or Michael Jordan, you know, we went to the same school together. You know, or we do that. We love to claim those that are well-known. And then when they come home, there's usually a great, great celebration. And Jesus' fame was becoming well-known, and they were hearing about it in the, in the miraculous things he was doing in Galilee. And then, now he's coming home. He's coming home. Oh, what will he say? What will happen? Wow, he's a hometown boy who made good. Now Jesus is going to deliver a hometown sermon. Dr. Luke tells us of this sermon in some detail, more than the other gospel accounts, and he also gives us the reaction 
reaction to it. The Puritans, you know, were fond of saying this. God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. The Puritans loved that expression as they raised up great divinity schools. Harvard, you know, was a great divinity. It was a seminary to begin with. Oh, how far we've gone. Baby, the wrong way, huh? Yale. Yale was started when Harvard went liberal. Did you know that? And, and so on. And Princeton lasted the longest out of all those. Well, the hometown sermon. I, I won't forget, uh, in 1983, I'd been pastoring uh, since 1979. And in 1983, I had occasion to be in the Buffalo area. And uh, I, I was so, uh, so honored that uh, the church that I've been saved in and grew up in invited me, since I was going to be in the area, would I not take this at a Sunday evening service and preach uh, the Word? I'll never forget that. I only, I only had one occasion, one time. And uh, I was so delighted and so thrilled. The church had meant so much to me. Uh, even though I was a kid, grew up on the periphery with my dad not being saved until just before he died. And... Uh, uh, but you know what? Uh, they all came, my family, my father, and they sat sort of in the second row. And I had a great opportunity to open the Word and to preach the Lord Jesus and salvation in that place. That was, that was, uh, it was amazing to me, that, that homecoming. I, uh, I'll never forget that. Well, in our account, we're going to look at, we're going to notice two actions. It's a simple message. Two actions, what? Here they are. Jesus preaches, and they react. He preaches, and they react. Two actions. Reminding us, you and I, to always respond to God's Word. How? By believing it. Believing it. For it is not the Word of God. It is not the voice of man. But it's God's holy, unchangeable Word. Take your Bible. Let's, let's read the account in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 14 to verse 30. And Jesus returned to Galilee, that's following his temptation, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. And he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And he went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue. And as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, or preach, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time and when 
the sky was shut up for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to the widow in Zarephath, in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I say to you in this uh, rather amazing text, it is an amazing account, you have to admit that. When Jesus goes home to the hometown and preaches, that there are two actions that remind us. I mean, this is the takeaway. This is really for you and for me. It reminds us to always respond to the hearing and to the reading of God's Word with obedience. Obedience. It is not your Word. It is not the Word of man. It is the Word of God. Well, the first action, as I mentioned, is... Uh, Roman and God's word is proclaimed by Jesus in this hometown sermon. Jesus came and he proclaimed. Here Jesus preaches, what? That he's the Messiah, the Christ, the Jubilee. And he warns of the danger of rejecting him. Now, we only get a thumb sketch of the sermon here. Don't think this was the total sermon Say, Pastor Arkham, you preach 50 minutes, and Jesus, if I see this, probably only three minutes. No, you're getting a thumb sketch here, sort of, okay? Kind of the high points, if you will, all that we need to know and by way of theme and, and the content and the reaction, the warning, and all of that. And so Jesus goes to the hometown, and he opens uh, the Word on the Sabbath, and uh, he preaches... Uh, that he is the Christ, this promised one that all of Israel has been waiting for. Uh, And then he warns them of the danger of rejecting him. Well, what can we say? A, on the Sabbath day, Jesus gathered together with others in public worship of God. We are told in the text, and every word of God's text is important, that this was his custom. It was his custom to gather with God's people in the synagogues on the Sabbath, every Sabbath, to worship God. That ought to speak to us. We live in a day which is heartbreaking for godly pastors when, when, when God's people kind of take it as, well, you know, like, eh, maybe I'll go today, maybe I won't. Never be. Jesus never did that. It was his custom. You see that in the text? It was his custom on the Sabbath day, that was the day of worship in the Old Testament economy, to worship God. In doing that, Jesus placed his divine seal of approval on public worship of God. He could have skipped, right? Anyone could have skipped. The Son of God who was sinless, who didn't need salvation, could have skipped. I imagine he sat in synagogue for years and heard pretty bad teaching. How about that, huh? I I don't think he ever fell asleep. You know, okay, I know that. Uh, But uh, pretty poor preaching, how about that? Could could he have said, you know, I think I'll just, Father, I'll spend this time with you alone. That would be far better. 
not on the golf course, but some people like say that, or hunting in the woods. Oh, I just worship God there. Bang, bang, you know? No, he, as his custom was, he put forever his sign of approval on it. Yeah, Hebrews tells us that in chapter 10. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. Now, I know you're here and you say you're feeling good because you're, I'm preaching to the choir. You say, well, I'm glad I showed up today. Yeah, but it ought to be, it ought to be the pattern of your life. It ought to be the pattern of your life to gather with God's people. And if you're traveling far away, you ought to find some God's people and join them. It is. I think I have it on your sheet here, don't I? Mm-hmm. Yet throughout Jesus' lifetime, he maintained a regular pattern of public public worship. Here it is, a quote. Uh, Weekly worship attendance is the foundation for any life that glorifies God. Determine in your heart before the Lord, the doors are open, I'm going to be there. And we, we're, we're not open all the time. We're not. You ought to be here for worship. And can I say something? We live in a, a pagan day. And I had kids, and we were really involved with sports. We were. And my kids were pretty good in sports. And uh, I didn't always tell the coaches in the, in the community, oh, I'm the pastor, and listen, you know, it's sin for you to have sports on Sunday morning. I didn't go at it that way. I didn't. I, I would say to the coach, um, um, you know, like you probably, you know, I know you have coaches meeting. I coach baseball. I was a high school wrestling coach for four years. I know coaches meeting. I know how they schedule. I know, okay. There used to be a time when Sunday morning was when it was, oh, wait, the kids go to church. Oh, wait, the kids go to Sunday school. We can't schedule them. It's encroached now. All right? What do you think is more important in God's mind? You think about that. I'm not going to answer it for you. And I don't know, you know, you guys have to work this out. But I used to tell the coach, listen, uh, what do you think about my daughter? She's pretty good, isn't she? Oh, oh yeah, she's up in the front, scores a goal, blah, blah, blah. You know, I said, I hate to see her miss any of your games. Well, what do you mean? I said, well, on Sunday morning, we go to Sunday school and church. Oh, Really? I said, well, when you have a coach's meeting, you do have a voice, and you probably want to urge them not to, because you, you want her there, right? And it's a matter of priorities, and we worship the Lord. But the same thing with my sons. You know, like, and, and so as a father, uh, you know, trying to elbow and leave that open so that the priority of worship, as we see in the life of the Lord Jesus, we can do that. Hey, when it's all said and done, and if you're in the hospital breathing your last, it really doesn't matter a whole lot that you were at that whatever. But you'll be so glad that you were being fed. That's what this is. It's feeding time. It's like a great Thanksgiving dinner. Don't you like that? Did you eat too much at Thanksgiving? This is what it is. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll, you know, like I'll sit home, read the paper and tea and crumpets, you know. Like, what? You know? So think about that. Look at the pattern of the Lord Jesus. If God should stir you up to, uh, to, to make a voice and to be faithful, then you do that. You work that out. The, the beauty of it is, is that each of us stand before the Lord and give an account. That's just sort of how I, I kind of work that out. I, and I used to say, and I used to say that with my, my boys anyway, what John MacArthur would used to say, I have a neat deal with my son. I go to his basketball game, 
he comes to my sermon. Sort of works that way. I like that. I heard that. I said, I love that. I absolutely love that. Jesus, as was his custom, uh, went to synagogue public worship, verse 16. Well, B, Luke gives us, in this account, probably one of the oldest accounts of what worship was like in a synagogue. They would pray. They would often end in prayers. We don't see that in the immediate text here, but uh, they would sing the Psalms. Did you know the Psalms are the Old Testament Hebrew hymn book? Uh, They would sing them. That's how they memorized them. Those 150 Psalms are songs. That's the word for psalme or song in in the Greek, and that's what comes to us in in the English, the book of Psalms. Uh, They would would sing, and then the, uh, the container would be open. And the uh, scroll would be taken out. It wasn't like our bound Bibles. Uh, you'll be glad that Stephanus in the 1500s put, put uh, chapter divisions and verse divisions in that because we'd be forever trying to find the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, right? It's kind of, those are kind of like cheat sheets to help us get the right where the text is and we can get there quickly. They had opened the scroll. They were made of leather parchment, and they would unroll it. Now, here's the thing. They were in Hebrew. And get this, this will blow your mind. The, uh, the Hebrew letters had no vowels. No vowels. You ever try and read English without vowels? You, you sort of could do that, and if you got used to it, just write, and no spaces between the words. Imagine that. And they went from right to left, okay? And they unrolled the scroll, and the Lord's unrolling the scroll, looking for Isaiah 61. That's what he's going to read from. Uh, there's no verses, no chapter, no page numbers. No vowels, no division between the words. And the Lord opens, he finds the exact text. You see, the Lord knew the word. He's a living word, but he knew the word. He's man, he's the God-man. And if he knew the word, how much more should we need to know the word? And he opens it, and he reads it. He read it in Hebrew, and commonly in the synagogue, because they didn't speak uh, Hebrew. The Hebrew was almost a lost language. Uh, Aramaic was the trade language of the day. He would translate it into Aramaic. And then he would give the scroll back to the scroll keeper. They put it in, they roll it up, put it into the container, and then uh, the teacher, the teacher, would sit down. That was a position of authority. It's sort of like that. When I had my hip uh, replacement, I sat down. I should do that a little bit more. Uh, it was, was kind of kind of more comfortable. Faith thought I was more relaxed in teaching with that. Maybe I was. Uh, and the Lord sat down. He would stand for the reading and honor for the word and respect for the God's holy word. But then he would sit the position of authority, the rabbi p- uh, position of authority, as he would teach the people expositionally what they had just read. That's how they did synagogue worship. And you can see where our church gatherings at least here at Grace, very informal, and it was often like that, sharing your prayer requests uh, in the eats, a lot of give and take, and uh, singing, and reading of the Word, exposition of Scripture. Very similar in feel, right? Very. There's only one temple, one temple in Jerusalem for sacrifice, prayers, but there were synagogues all over, and they were the gathering places, just like a church is today. And that's something that feels like that, doesn't it? And it should. And, and of course, some churches are higher in liturgy, stand, sit, you know, stand, sit, sit, stand, repeat, stand, sit. It can be deadening. It can be something nice about it if it wasn't done all the time, but 
the formality of it almost gets deadening. You know, you, you know when to fall asleep and wake up and not miss anything. It's right there in the program and, and so on. So it's very similar to that. And as you read Luke's account here, and I think I have a lot of that on your sheet here, um, the exposition was the main part of uh, the service at the synagogue. You know, any great church, that's the way it ought to be. The church ought not to be, the service ought not minimize the teaching of the Word. The Puritans knew exactly what was important. They gather, they pray, they sing a couple of psalms, and they got right to the Word. And we've gotten away from that. Uh, we love worship music, don't we? Isn't it wonderful? Well, I love you, Lord. We love to sing that, and we sing that together, and some of the great songs, and our band does a great job with that. <clears throat> uh, and some people call, well, that's the worship. Well, that's worship, yeah. Your, your giving is worship, right? Your, your praying is worship. And when we open the Word of God and we heard God's Word in the page, that's worship, as we have the open hearts attentive to saying, Lord, I prepared my heart. What do you have for me here today? and to learn the Word of God. And that was the center focus. And that's the center focus today of any great church. It's built upon the teaching of God's Word in a day where it's being absolutely minimized. You know, people say, well, I, that's what it says. Well, let me tell you my experience. Really, I don't, not now. You know, please, just sit down. Let's teach God's Word. It's not the place for it. So here we are. The exposition is here. That's what the Lord Jesus is involving himself in. He is going to teach them what the Scripture means. Uh, C, Jesus knew the Scriptures, didn't he? He unraveled the role to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he stood up, as I said, in respect for the Word, the Word of God, and he read it. And this text that he read is rather interesting. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, 2a, actually. This text promised that the coming Messiah, uh, this Christ, the promised one, the seed of the woman of Genesis 3, 15, would, uh, would bring about the ultimate day of Jubilee. Now, some of you don't know your Old Testament well enough to know what uh, the day of Jubilee is. You should know that. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Leviticus 25. You see, in the nation of Israel, God directed Moses, as he wrote Leviticus, that every seven years, the nation of Israel was to be a Sabbath year, rest under the Lord. And what it meant was that on that seventh year, the land was to rest. You were not to cultivate it. It was God's part of God's ingenious plan of allowing uh, the nutrients of the soil to replenish and not to draw all the nutrients out. You end up with soil you can't grow anything in. It was a year of rest in many other ways as well. Um, it was a year of trusting God. Just imagine if, uh, if a year came and you didn't plant any corn or tomatoes or vegetables or, or beans or anything else. Well, what do we do? Well, I guess we have to trust God. And that's what they did. God wanted that. And there are a lot of levels God was working on. Well, every seven years. Well, then at the end of 7-7, seven, seven, remember, number seven is the number of God, the number of completion, seven days in a week, one complete. After seven sevens, the 49th year... Then you went to the next year, which was the 50th year. That's the year of Jubilee, the year of greatest celebration. It's the year of redemption, the year of release. It was God's incredible economic program where, whereby families 
would receive all their wealth back again that had been lost over the last 49 years. Have you ever noticed some people are able to take a certain amount of wealth and really make a lot of wealth, and some people have some wealth and they lose it all? Uh, and uh, God's uh, uh, ordained for the family to retain the, f- the family farm and the territory and the wealth and the cancellation of debts all happened at the year of Jubilee. It was a year of release. It was a year of redemption. It was a year of celebration. It, uh, it, was, uh, it was marvelous. The year of release, the captives were set free, and it all returned again. It's like, I guess it's like Monopoly, right? When your, your kid's sister cleans you out and you've got nothing left and you're finally glad when the game's over and you put it all away, right? Put it all away. Collect all that phony money and and then the next day, play again, phase going to start all over again. All right, everyone starts with the same amount of money. Sort of like that. Well, God was concerned certainly about the nation of Israel, but in that there was a great symbolism that ultimately and finally pointed to the person of the coming Son of God, the Lord Jesus, who in a far greater way than canceling financial debts and returning the land, it was a cancellation of the debt of sin. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. I'm not talking there in the Lord's Prayer about finances. Oh, it may involve that. He's talking about our sin. And that the Lord was the great jubilee. And here he comes to the hometown and all the fanfare. And now he's into the synagogue with all the familiar faces. And what's he going to read? He reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2a. And it's the, the grand fulfillment of the, of the jubilee, of the promise of the Messiah, the Christ that would come and the release of all and the cancellation of all debts through him and pointing to his cross, his great work. And he points to himself and he says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, you could have heard a pin drop. Uh, they were absolutely shocked at his, uh, at his interpretation and exposition of the passage. Isaiah tells in the passage the Jubilee that will end all Jubilees, speaking of the great day of salvation that would be found in this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, uh, it says, the year of God's favor. That's the year of Jubilee. That's what he's talking about. The, the, the only lasting, the blank is liberty that comes from having one's sins forgiven as a result of Christ's work at the cross. Well, in this uh, text, and Jesus uh, 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 mentions that Isaiah promised liberation or freedom or release for four kinds of people. And each of these, I remind you, speak to our spiritual condition and not to our physical circumstances. Don't forget that. He's speaking here about our greater need, our spiritual need, our being right with God. He says, first of all, uh, in the text, that God would uh, uh, proclaim good news to the poor. See that in verse 18? There's the first one, to the poor. He means uh, not to the, those that don't have a bank account. Nazareth, I got news for you, they were all pretty poor, at least by American standards. He's not referring to the poor. Though the poor financially are often open, more open to the gospel of hearing that they're spiritually poor, bankrupt. Remember uh, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit? That's what Jesus is talking about here. 
In other words, the way to the cross is, well, you have to say that I'm absolutely bankrupt. There's nothing in me, no goodness, that would ever merit salvation, nothing. I'm poor. I'm poor. You're owning up the fact that you're a sinner lost and deserving of hell. I'm poor. I'm bankrupt. The poor, what does he say here? It's good news that that's the word for the gospel. It's the gospel to the poor. It's not just the poor. Sometimes the poor are very pride, prideful. They can be very proud in the fact of who they are and resist any good news of the gospel. Uh, the rich can be as well. They can be very distracted by riches, and yet uh, God can save the rich as well. So, so it's the one gospel for all people, but the poor. Second, he mentions uh, the prisoners. Uh, and he said, and he sent me to proclaim, again, proclaim freedom, liberty for the prisoners. Now, there is a Nazareth in the synagogue, and uh, there, there's no prison in town. He's not talking about release the criminals. He's not talking about physically releasing them. Again, he's speaking in spiritual terms. He's referring to those that are captives. Captive to what? Captive to sin. He's referring to the reality that until you and I uh, come to know Christ the Lord as Savior, we are slaves to sin. I, the Lord has ordained me to, to release the captives to sin. Listen, there's no greater captivity than the bondage to sin. And we're born, every one of us. I was born that way and so were you. The Bible from cover to cover, all the way through, presents us. It's uh, sin and it's bondage imprisons the mind. We end up having a far better picture of ourselves than what we ought. Sometimes it's a, it's a reprobate mind. It's a perverted mind. It's a demented mind. It imprisons the mind. It enslaves the heart. We love the things that God hates. Right? We love them. And we hate the things that God loves. It enslaves the heart. And finally, it incarcerates the soul. You have to love Charles Wesley's old song, the old hymn, where the lyric, speaking of Christ and his salvation, and he breaks the power of reigning sin. That's what Jesus did. That's why it's the great jubilee. Today, he said in the sermon, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow, what a, what a message. And then he goes on to give a third description, the blind. Now, referring to the physically blind, a terrible thing it is to lose your sight, how bad that is. But Jesus is talking about something more serious than that, There's something more serious than phys- loss of physical sight, and that's being spiritually blind. Uh, he, uh, he Remember the, the man that was born blind, and he opened the eyes of the man that was born blind? Truly a miracle. And he did that uh, as he began to preach, I am the light of the world. And I'm reminded until you have come to know Christ the Lord as Savior, you're blinded. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, lest they should see the light of the glorious gospel and be saved. I saw that in my own family, with my own father. He didn't want to know anything about the gospel. He said, I don't understand it. I don't know anything, blah, 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 blah. And when he finally, the last Sunday ever lived, and God saved him that Sunday, my mother recounts the conversation. 
It was at Christmas time. And my father, quite a bright man, said to my mother, I never realized that Mary was a virgin. And it like shocked my mother. Like, and she said, Eddie, we've been singing these Christmas songs forever. Blindness. Blindness. And you and I are blind. We're blind until we come to the cross of Jesus Christ and are saved. One man writes, and I agree with him, that sin is the world's leading cause of blindness. You know that? It is. It is. It blinds us to the Scriptures. We cannot see the truth of God's Word. It blinds us to our sin itself. We do not see our need to be forgiven. Incidentally, that's a great need. You know, when you, people need the law of God. The law of God, the old Puritans used to preach the law of God. Why? People feeling pretty good. No, people need to know the law of God, that they've fallen short and they're in sin. And when God opens their heart and their mind and their eyes and they see their true condition before God, it's when they see their lostness and their wretchedness and their sin. That's when they say, how shall I escape? And then they see the glory of the grace and the love of God at the cross. So you preach law, you preach grace. You tell law, you tell grace. You ask people, you know, are you a pretty good person? Most people say, good. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, I didn't kill anybody. They'll often say that, right? Right? Yeah. And just ask them, can I ask you a couple of questions? Yeah, what's that? Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, everybody lies. No, no, I know, but have you lied? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have. Are you lying to me now? Yeah, I always put that. In. It gives a little humor, you know. Like, <laughs> or if they say no, yeah, are you lying to me now? Yeah. <laughs> have you ever stealed anything? Well, my sister did. No, I mean, if you, you know, and then just say, you know what? That that means you're a lawbreaker by your own admission. You have broken the law of God. You know what God says about that? You're lost. Have you ever looked upon a woman to lust after? Uh, no, no, really, don't lie. You're lying now, I can tell it. You know what God says about that? You're in sin and you're lost. You break the law in one part, you're guilty of all. You see, they need, they need to know that. It blinds us. Uh, sin is the world's leading cause of blindness. It blinds us to, to the Savior. And, our, and we don't see the salvation that Jesus has to offer because of our sin and we do not see any of these until Jesus comes to cure our blindness by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. We believe the Bible, we repent, turn from sin, and we take by faith God's wonderful cleansing and forgiveness. And finally, the oppressed, right? The abused. That's what we would call it today, abused. Those that are just under the hard circumstances of life. And there are many. There are many. And Jesus said, I'm the Jubilee. I'm, I'm today, this year of amnesty. The debtors are all released. Wow. Wow. Well, these pointed to the 50th year in Israel, the year of Jubilee, the year of release. What a joy. What a joy. This spoke of the day when God would come and save his people. Today, Jesus boldly declares this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Wouldn't that have been something to just... I know we have some pretty amazing technologies today. Be able to go back and to do a video clip of that. 
Wouldn't that be neat to be able to flash that out? Now let's hear the Lord do that now. Here he is. Wouldn't that be? Today shows the unity of the scriptures, right? Today you can't be broken. The Old Testament looks forward. The Old Testament presents Christ. The New Testament presents Christ. They all look at the cross. They look forward to the second coming of Christ. That's what the Lord said on the road to Emmaus. Search the scriptures. They teach of me. Well, Jesus came to bring spiritual deliverance from the power of sin. He proclaimed. The word proclaim is used three times. It's a key word here. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. That's what he was doing, preaching. Now, because of the crowd's initial unbelief, why do I say that? Because now all of a sudden they're trying to fumble about, figuring like they're trying to figure out, well, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you're, you're Joseph's son. You, you can see they're, they're kind of put back on their heels. They've never heard preaching like this, particularly the announcement that today this is being declared. Wait a minute, whoa. And so the Lord picks up on that, and he warns them. And we only get a thumb sketch of it here. Physician, heal yourself. That's in the text. Some of you are going to say that. And that day, the physicians, they were not advanced like today. And a lot of times, uh, it was quackery. Not too many years ago, it was. You know, some of the things they put people through not too many years ago. You know, uh, not too many years ago, actually, uh, if, you, if you had a lot of, if you had a problem, it was not uncommon for them to get a bowl and cut your veins and they felt you had too much blood. You know, they did that to George Washington. You got too much blood here. You know, take that. You can imagine back, now go back 1,800 years prior to that, the Lord, the, you know, some of it was good, a lot of it was bad, a lot of it caused a lot of pain. And so uh, uh, they would say, physician, heal yourself. Do your treatment on yourself first here. I'm going to see if it works. And then, then I'll let you slice my artery here. That was the idea. You're somebody going to say, uh, do that or show us something. And then he goes on to say, a prophet is, is without honor. <clears throat> the Lord uh, warns them because he senses their unbelief in verses 23 through 27. And he warns them. He warns them, and in each of these God warnings, God's blessing went outside of the nation of Israel. It went to the Gentiles, who they considered as dogs, outside of Abraham's covenant. Um, and the Gentiles received the word by faith. That's what's going on here. Uh, he uh, cites two prophets, Elijah, and that's 1 Kings 17, uh, Elijah, the great prophet, they loved Elijah in Israel. But during the three-and-a-half-year uh, famine, uh, he went to the poor widow in Zarephath, uh, and uh, she was down to her last bit of morsel. And the prophet asked her, you can check this out in your own reading, uh, feed me some of that. And she said, if I feed it to you, my son and I will die. That's all we have. And uh, the word of God spoken through the prophet said, if you do that, God will take care of you. In other words, believe the word of God. And she was extremely poor, ready to die, and so she did. She acted upon the word of the Lord through the prophet Elijah, and she fed him, gave the little bit that she had. And you know what? You know the story, most of you. God provided for her and her son miraculously. She believed by faith first, and then she saw the result of that. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Take my word here by faith, and then the blessing will follow. And if you don't do that, then God will take the gospel outside of the nation Israel and open their heart, and they will believe my faith. And you'll get the short end of the stick because of your unbelief. And then he went to another prophet, Elisha. Elisha. Elisha uh, dealt with uh, another foreigner, someone outside of the nation of Israel, Nahum, you know, a great military man, had leprosy, wealthy. One was poor, one was wealthy. Wealthy. And uh, he had heard that there was a prophet in Israel that could heal him. So the great Syrian in all his pride came down, and Elisha confronts Elisha. Elisha gets the word out to him, you know, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and you'll be healed. Well, at first, uh, because of his pride and his position, he said, you've got to be kidding. The Jordan River, that's like the polluted Niagara River when I was a kid, right? We have beautiful rivers up where I'm from. I'm not going to do that. And he had a very wise servant that said, I think you should follow by faith here the prophet's word. Very good servant. And uh, it opened Naaman's heart, and he goes down into the water. Seven times he had to dip himself, and he came out cleansed. A foreigner who acted on faith, on the word of God through the prophet, and receive the blessing. And that's the warning the Lord is announcing to the hometown crowd. Listen, this day the Scripture is fulfilled. Let God open your heart and believe it. Believe it. And then the blessings will follow. And if not, then it will leave the nation Israel and it will go to the Gentiles. Well, they just about came unglued. We're going to see that in a moment. Uh, because they hated the outsiders. Wow, what a message. What a, uh, what, what a sermon. What a sermon. It was probably the greatest sermon, the greatest preacher of all time. Oh, to have heard it. But it follows, as every sermon does, by a, re- a reaction. And that's the second action here, reminding us to always respond in faith to the Word of God. And here the reaction, verse 22, 28 through 30, is God's word is utterly rejected by this hometown crowd, and it results in a mob scene. It's amazing. Look at verse uh, 22, where they say, isn't this Joseph's son? They're trying to figure out, whoa, wait a minute here. Who is the... And then 28, then all, there it is, all the people in the synagogue were furious. Angry is the word. When they heard this, they got up and they drove him out of town. And they attempted to kill him. It's a reminder to all of us that wherever God's word is delivered, there's always a response, always. You know, and to respond, say, well, no way. That's a response. Or to say, manana, that's a response, but be careful. And to say, Lord, you know, you've spoken here. This is the Word of God. You've opened my heart. I've seen the cesspool of sin within. I confess it and repent. I receive you as Savior. Always. 
The Word of God is powerful and quick and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces the heart. It accomplishes God's purpose. I'll never forget the story. I've said it to you how many times when when a good friend of mine and uh, another guy went and visited a a man in the community not too far away and uh, knocked on the door, went in, sat down, the old-timer, and uh, asked at the door, might we share with you a few minutes some great news? He didn't know them, and he invited them in. And they took the next 20 minutes and shared with him from the Word of God the gospel. And went from A to Z and uh, shared with him his need of Christ. Uh, And at the end, they asked, would you like to respond to this wonderful news that God saves sinful men like you and like us? And the man said, no, no, not today. Nope, nope, not really interested. And they were getting ready to go, and behind the couch, they had not even noticed, was about a nine-year-old girl. And as they were headed to the door, they heard a voice, and she said, Mister, can I receive Jesus as my Savior today? Now, I ought to give you hope. There's always a response. Always. Always. Sometimes it's no. Don't worry about that. Sometimes people need to hear it over and over, and God works in their heart. But sometimes when you present it, little do you realize who's hearing it. And God's Word will open the heart. And it's a miracle. God opens the heart and produces belief and salvation. And sometimes it's the the last person you're thinking about. It's amazing. And there are people that are amazed that I'm a pastor today. They saw me grow up like Jesus. They're like, whoa, he's Eddie's son. Wait, whoa, we know that guy. He used to throw chestnuts at the stop signs and the red lights and sometimes through windows with BB guns. Oh, we know him. We know him. That's probably why they only invited me to preach at my hometown church once, you know. We can't believe it, you know. (laughs) You've never been invited? I understand that, Jim. (laughs) I love it. Right. There's always a response, so take heart in that. Well, look, hey, Jesus was rejected. Why? Because he was so well-known. So well-known. Do you ever hear the expression, familiarity breeds contempt? That's it. Familiarity breeds contempt. We know him. We know him. We know Joseph. We know Mary. We, we, we know his brothers and sisters. You can read the other accounts. Matthew and Mark also have a parallel account, and this fill in some of the other data. We know his brothers and sisters. We know him from school. We know him. He played on the soccer team. He was on the football team. He was, we know him. You know what? They thought they knew him. Familiarity breeds contempt. We know him. Jesus mentions the proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town. We know what that is. We use that. People love their hometown heroes. I mentioned that earlier. But not, but not their local prophets. <laughs> Why is that? For they, a local prophet, uh, if he's faithful, will confront sin and unbelief. It's hardly a way, a way to be popular, right? It's not Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Hey, you're a sinner, you're lost. Let me tell you what God said. No, we don't want to hear that. We just love our sin, you know. Prophets not without honor. One man wrote that they were too close to him to see his greatness. Too close. I heard John MacArthur say one time, um, 
he was recounting his son, and John has been used by for a whole generation now in his writing, his preaching, his blessed pulpit here. One of the two heroes of mine, Jim Boyce, John MacArthur. And John said that, uh, recounting about his son, he said, Dad, I don't get it. He said, uh, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know why people just, uh, it's amazed. They, they just read your books and they, they listen to your radio broadcast. And they, he said, like, I'm just, I'm, you're, just, you're just my dad. You're just my dad. And I thought, what a great compliment. You know, you play baseball with me, you play catch, you go to my game, you, you do that and this and that. And it was a sign of the Spirit of God resting upon an ordinary man, right? He was so close to his dad, he couldn't see it. And yet he thought the world and thought his dad was great, I'm sure. Well, you're just my dad. What a great compliment, right? And sometimes we're so close to someone near us, we don't see their greatness and their wonder. And maybe until it's too late. They thought they knew him. They watched him grow up. They lived among him. They thought, uh, he's the son of Joseph. He's that carpenter. They thought he was ordinary. 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 But they didn't really know him, did they? In his humility, his glory was hidden. They didn't really know him. They didn't know him. Yet they went to synagogue. They knew the Scriptures. A lot of people today go to church. Not as many as should. They don't go to good churches, a lot of them. But they learn Sunday school stories. They learn about Jesus. He did this, he did that, you know, and all that kind of thing. And, oh, yeah, I know him. I know him. I know him. They don't really know him. They're so close to him. They hear it, but they never know him. They never own him as their shepherd. And maybe that's some of your stories. You know, you come out of that background. Heard a lot about Jesus, maybe, but... Oh, I know, I know, I know. But you didn't. And it was later, later, God opened your heart and saved you. They thought they knew him. Familiarity bred contempt. We, he, he's a carpenter. He's nothing more. I, wow. Many in our day think they know him, but in reality, they don't. Be careful about that. And finally, be, Jesus was rejected because he was not really known. And you know the expression familiarity also breeds ignorance. 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 Familiarity. It does, doesn't it? Most guys aren't as detail-oriented as women. Have you ever noticed that? I'm amazed at Faithy. Sometimes uh, I'll, I'll refer to an event, and she will actually tell me what she wore at that five years ago. I'm like blown out of my mind. I don't remember what I wore yesterday. I'm hoping I had clothes on, but, you know, <laughs> familiarity breeds ignorance, right? I, even right now, as I think, I don't even know what color my toothbrush is. Do you? How many of you know the color of your toothbrush? How many don't? How many brush? <laughs> I mean, like, we use it all the time, right? But women are more detail-oriented than guys and all that kind of thing, but familiarity breeds ignorance, and the synagogue turns into a mob scene. They rush, rush him out. They march him out. They try to kill him. Verse 29, it's a, it's a precursor to what was going to happen in a few years at Calvary again. Herod tried to kill him as a baby. Now the hometown crowd, thumbs down, rush him out, throw him off the cliff and kill him. Wow. 
I guess he's not going to be the next mayor in that town. Wow. He insulted their pride. I mean, they were the group that were at synagogue. They came to worship. What do you mean? We're poor and captive and slaves and prisoners. How dare he talk to us like that? We're his elders. We're good people. We go to church. He insulted their pride. Listen, the way to the cross and the way to life is low. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You have to be bankrupt. Come to the end of yourself. And how about this? God sets all the boundaries. Look, take heart in this. They tried to kill him. Now, I, I imagine he, had, he was, you know, I'm a guy's guy kind of thing, right? He worked with stone and carpentry and wood. He was not a wimpy guy. Jesus sort of some, he's, no way, no way. He was all man. He was God's man. He was God's servant. He was real man. He was not some macho goof-up guy or some effeminate type guy. He was a real man who had real biceps, and he really worked manual work. And you don't do that without being pretty trim, especially after a 40-day fast. He could have made weight. That's an old wrestling coach. And they're trying. They're going to try and kill him. Here's here's the good news. Okay, God sets all the boundaries. It was not God's time. God had ordained the moment that he would be nailed to the cross. And here's the good news for you. God sets all the boundaries, physically and metaphysically, in life. He has numbered all your days. It's not up for grabs. Read that in Psalm 139. All your days, even known now, even established before the foundation of the world. Take heart in it. I find great comfort in that. The distance physically, the sun from the earth, the moon, the days, 24 hours, the calendar, where we live. It's no accident that all of you are here, that you have the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities and all of that. Your families and who's in it. You say, I'm in the wrong family. I'd like to trade up. No, you're in, you, I'm married to, no, you're, who, God, yes. God sets all the boundaries. It wasn't time for Jesus to be killed. And it doesn't tell us how he made his way through the crowd, whether it was miraculously or he just gave a couple guys a couple one of these and walked through the crowd. I kind of like to envision that. Get away. And a couple guys picked themselves off the ground, and they made way. It wasn't the right time. Take heart in that. Be encouraged by that. But here's the final note on it, and it's a sad note, that Jesus would never again, never, visit his hometown, ever. You search the Scriptures and see if that's right. And the message for us is don't delay you don't know when it'll be the last time you'll ever hear the gospel, ever. That's the last time they ever heard it. Last time. Last time. I'm so I'm so thankful, and I mentioned my dad earlier, that the last time he heard the gospel, God opened his heart that Sunday night, and then he passed into heaven the following Saturday. Wow. Jesus returns home. What are some lessons for our life that will be done? Number one. We, we need to know the Scriptures, and we need to believe them. 
Jesus took the scroll and he unrolled it. He knew exactly where it was going. You need to know the Scriptures. You study to show yourself approved unto God. Some of you study, you know, the sports scores and the columns and know all that. And some of you uh, know all sorts of things about things. Give yourself to the priority. Know the Scriptures. You've got to give yourself to them. Number two. Number two. Remember, sin is the world's leading cause of blindness. Sin. Blindness. It's true. It's not because people are stupid. They don't receive Christ. It's their sin that blinds them. Number three. This was not Jesus' time to die. God has set all the boundaries, even all the boundaries of your life. Of my brother-in-law, Paul, last week. Time to come home, Paul. Home before dark. God sets all the boundaries. Number four, worship needs to be a priority for you and for your loved ones. Gather every single week with God's people. Make it a priority. It's more important than most everything else. Unless you're providentially hindered, gather as Jesus, as was his custom. Number five and last, all people everywhere need this gospel. Born lost in sin. And if you have never trusted Christ the Lord, today is the day of salvation. Come to him and be saved. 